Hi, I'm Lotus Hackenberger, and you're listening to the 12th episode of the Postgraduate Environment Networks podcast, PenPod. Today we'll be talking to Cameron, who is also currently completing the Master of Environment program and previously undertook a bachelor's degree in international relations. Cam has experience in a range of fields, including asset management, communications, clean energy investment, and energy consulting. Today we'll be discussing what the circular economy is, Cam's position at Corio as a circular economy consultant, and her pathway to this amazing role, drawing out the key challenges and lessons relevant for working in this space. I hope you learned something from this episode and please follow our show as well as other inspiring podcasts available through the Climactic Climate Podcast Network. Hello, Cam. Thank you for coming on as a guest today instead of the host to the Pen Podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Lotus. Really excited to be here. Today, we'll be talking about your role as a circular economy consultant, what the circular economy actually is, and fleshing out elements of your role relevant for massive environment students. So first, to start off, I'd love to hear about your background and your journey within the environmental space. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's really exciting to be here interviewed as a part of the pod. I used to do these interviews, so it's really nice to be able to share some of my insights after some experience in the environmental sector. Um, in terms of my background, I feel like many of you might relate with this. I I do have a, I am a bit of a cliche sometimes. I used to work in finance in New York, got pretty burnout, fed up with the industry in terms of positive impact on the world. So had a quarter life crisis and quit um, and ended up traveling in Southeast Asia for about a year. And during that time, you know, I, I was really upset with the state of the world. Trump had just been elected in my home country, the United States. The uh, refugee crisis was going on in Euro Europe. Obviously, climate change was a factor. But when I traveled Southeast Asia, I really realized the extent of climatic change and pollution and also how it linked up with social inequity. You know, I was seeing a lot of poor populations living next to more hazardous or polluted sites. And once I started to delve a little bit more into what climate change meant as a problem, what were the roots, what were the potential solutions, I started to realize that this is a catalyst for massive societal change and not just you know, environmental, more positive outcomes for, um, for, for ecosystems, but also for changing societal inequity and access to healthcare and other sort of basic human services. So that's when I really decided I wanted to use this issue that's increasingly staring us in the face and making humanity have to look in the mirror as a springboard to a better world. And that's kind of why I pivoted to the environmental sector, starting with um, the Master of Environment at University of Melbourne. 
thank you for sharing this. That gives some great context into why you're passionate about this area. Next, I was wondering if you could tell us about your current position. Absolutely. So currently, I'm in the my favorite job I've ever had. I am a circular economy consultant at uh, Corio, which is Australia's only dedicated circular economy consultancy. So we're a boutique consultancy, which is essentially industry jargon for meaning that we're really small. <laughs> Um, and we're not an Arab or an EY or an edge, but because we're small, we are, you know, nimble and sometimes able to, um, offer more innovative, uh, proposals to clients that really can push the needle a little bit more than traditional large, um, big bureaucratic firms would provide. And just before I go into what I do now, I also want to say that I did not just come out of the master environment into the best job ever. And I know that Lotus will be asking me on later on about how I got to this role, but it, you know, it, I did build this up. It wasn't, um, it was a journey and, you know, no, everybody starts from scratch. Nobody is going to find their dream job right away. And I'm really lucky to be in a dream job right now. But in terms of what is my role? So what is a circular economy consultant? <laughs> um, it's a bit of a difficult question because we kind of act as jacks of all trade. And this will become a little bit clearer when I explain what the circular economy is. But before I do that, it's, it's systemic and it really is about looking at things holistically and connecting all these different dots in order to maximize efficiencies, design out waste, realize synergies between different industries. So waste from one industry could be feedstock into another. And in order to find those synergies, you need, you can't keep looking at things from a siloed perspective. You have to look at it from a systems top down approach. Um, and in terms of what my day to day is. So we work with companies acro across the value chain and across industry. So we work with big developers, big miners, consumer goods companies. We work a lot with government and we help to enact circular economy strategy. So that could be, you know, setting a wide strategy for business, you know, the same way businesses are setting decarbonization strategies or water reduction strategies or biodiversity strategies. So that kind of fits under the growing movement for increased ESG in the corporate sector. Mm -hmm. But then also we help to take the circular economy from theory to practice. So really working with companies, okay, we've helped define these targets, we've helped define these strategy, but what does that look like in implementation, right? So what projects can we do that will actually help us to achieve those? So if a company is circular economy strategy is focused on being regenerative, giving back to ecosystems and society more than it takes, then let's say if they're a big developer, you know, a project could be really um, designing with place when you're building a new building. So, you know, if it is, if we are building on a natural marshland, why would we be building gray infrastructure to manage stormwater when we could be using already existing permeable surfaces and the existing ecosystems on the site? Um, or if a company strategy is, you know, design out waste, zero waste to landfill, we're starting to see that a lot. Um, although I do have 
thoughts on that, and I will get to that in a second. Examples of projects could that would be, you know, conducting, for example, a material flow analysis. So mapping all the materials that are flowing in the materials that exist within stock, so within a company's assets, and then the materials that are flowing out, and then mapping those volumes to environmental impact indicators, carbon being one that's most commonly known, but there's, you know, we all know there's more than one planetary boundary. So are these materials causing harm to biodiversity? Are they causing more freshwater use? Because what we really don't want is for a company to implement an initiative that maybe reduces on carbon here, but then increases freshwater use over there or increases negative societal impacts through increased pollution or toxicity or whatever. Um, so again, it's really using that, that system-based approach to implement projects that make sense in the context. We always say the circular economy is global in um, ideation and local in implementation. So, you know, perhaps that, that that's why all of our decisions and all the projects that we implement have to be rooted in really robust data analysis because, you know, the same solution in an Australian context could be a lot more damaging than that solution in a European context just based on the systems in place. Mm. Um yeah, and I, I'm happy to give some more examples of projects that we work on. Yeah, as we go along, you can always give examples to explain. Sounds like the materialization of one man's trash is another man's treasure. <laughs> that's part of it. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it. Next, I would love to get you to really articulate what the circular economy actually is. It's a term that's starting to get thrown around more and more, but what is it? Yeah, no, great question, and I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> so the circular economy, you're totally right, it's a buzzword. Um, it's being thrown around a lot, and it's not a concept that's very well understood. And I want to use this platform to tell everybody that it is, I, in my view, it's the way. It's how we're going to solve climate change and societal inequity. It's a framework. So I think a lot of people are under the impression that the circular economy is a new sustainability imperative, like decarbonization, like biodiversity conservation, like freshwater use reduction. It's not. It is a an economic framework to achieve those goals so achieve decarbonization, achieve biodiversity conservation, whatever your ESG goals are, while continuing to drive economic growth and value in, an, in a world that's increasingly resource constrained. Um, so it really is, it's the how, it's not the why. And I think this kind of leads into my next point is that a lot of people think that the circular economy is about waste. It's not about waste. It's a framework to do three things. It's guided by very three very clear guiding principles. These are to design waste and pollution out of the system. So decarbonization would fit into that. For example, that's pollution. And then also design out waste. That's the key word we have to focus on here. It's not about managing waste after we've created it. It's about changing our product design, changing our business models, changing the way that we consume so that we're not creating that waste in the first place. And that's why um, 
waste to energy, for example, in a circuit from a circular economy perspective is actually, you know, almost equivalent to landfilling. Um, it is slightly better, but you're basically taking valuable products and materials and then incinerating them as fuel that can only be used once. And then you've lost all the value of those products and materials. So let's talk about food waste. We're seeing like, you know, biogas be a common pathway by governments to achieve net zero. Really, those, that food waste contains really valuable nutrients that should be returned to our biosphere as nutrients to our ecosystems to help re-enrich our soils and to help draw down carbon. And when we're burning that as waste to energy, we are losing the value of those nutrients that we need to fight climate change and to fuel regeneration. And then we're also creating a, a reliance on waste creation to fuel our society. Um, I sidetracked there, but that's the first principle, design out waste and pollution. The second principle is to keep products in circulation at their highest value for as long as possible. So uh, if you think about, I mean, some of these principles overlap. So this example could seem a little bit similar to the one that I just gave, but keep products in circulation at their highest value for as long as possible. So let's talk about plastics. Plastics are a hard durable, and many of them can take up to 500 years to biodegrade in our ecosystems. So let's say you drank a bottle of Coke, and then you finish your bottle of Coke, and then you chuck it in the recycling. Why are we expending energy and fuel to, to melt down that Coke bottle, to shred it, to break it up into pellets, and then reform it into another Coke bottle to contain liquid, when even though you were done drinking it, it still has value as a liquid container. Further to this, plastic can only be recycled 10 times, let's say, it depends on the type of plastics, but an average of 8 to 10 times, the, the polymers in those plastics will break down every time. So every time you're putting it through that recycling process, you're getting closer to having to send it to landfill, even though from the get-go, it still retained its original function as a liquid container. So right now, our systems are not acting in the appropriate way. They're not treating materials to their highest value, because if we had washing systems in place instead of recycling systems, that would promote keeping materials in circulation at their highest value for as long as possible. And another example of this is something that people might understand a little bit more is, you know, we, Coles and Willies have created really durable plastic bags to get away from really crappy plastic that are more um, usable, that promote you know, longer life. People can use them way more times before they break down. However, because of human behavior, lack of education, many people are still treating these more durable plastic bags like they were the, uh, the prior, less durable plastic bags. So we've created the product that is longer life, but our systems and our culture isn't quite there yet in terms of keeping that product in circulation at its highest value for as long as possible. So um, that's the second principle of the circular economy. 
And the third and really important one is to regenerate natural and social systems. And this is about the legacy issue. So, you know, the linear economy, um, which I'll get to describing in a second. We call it a take-make-waste economy. And basically, we take stuff from the earth, we make products out of them, we use them, and then when we're done with them, we dump them. So we really place function on products and materials for as long as they provide function to us. Instead of thinking about how they could provide function to somewhere else or somebody else within our giant complex system. And this has caused extreme damage on our environment because not only are we taking all these minerals and nutrients out of the ground, we're putting them back in the ground in a way that it's not actually returning to our biosphere or returning into our economic system. So really this is about how can we solve for this giant legacy issue that's now being manifesting in the form of climate change and pollution and ocean acidification and on the societal side, massive societal inequity. How can we give back more than we take? How can we change our systems, our products, our culture in order to regenerate society? And, a, and an example of this is the built environment, buildings. These are really long-lived assets that we live and work and play in every day. And right now, the construction industry has a massive impact on consumption of materials. It uses a lot of materials, and it burns a lot of carbon in the process, and it wastes a lot of materials. So if a building, you know, if somebody wants to renovate, they'll just demo it and then send that to landfill. But buildings are really, really valuable banks, essentially. A building is just a giant bank of copper, aluminum, steel, cement. And these are materials that can be recycled almost inf infinitely. So why are we sending them to a hole in the ground when they can actually be recovered? And then on these buildings, often buildings are in large urban environments, right? So why? how can we build green infrastructure, use green roofs to actually provide more ecosystem services than they're depleting from the environment? Or... On the renewable energy side, can buildings actually provide more energy than they are um, using in order to really generate energy for the surrounding society instead of having to source from fossil fuels or from PPAs? We can actually generate on site and we can use large infrastructure because they have the space and the surface to host renewable energy applications. So those are the three principles of the circular economy. And I hope that in my complex description, I'm sorry, that was a lot of information, that it is clear that it's about a lot more than waste. It's about changing everything, changing the way that we operate, changing the way that we design. And um, a really important stat I want to share with you is that if the... The shift to renewable energy in our grid and transportation systems can only help to address 55% of the goals of the Paris Agreement. The other 45% needs to be addressed by the way that we produce and consume materials. So it's, it's way more than waste. It is a framework for how we're going to get this done. And if you think about on the economic side, one of the reasons this is such a valuable framework is that 
businesses and governments can really see the value. It's not like they have to make a sacrifice for sustainability anymore. Because it aligns with the continued growth model. Exactly. They just want revenue, right? But now the market is saying they have to be, you know, ESG forward. And they have to help align with the Paris Agreement. Traditionally, they would, you know, they would probably have a line item in their budget for a separate initiative, used to be called CSR, and they that would be an expense, right? And it's hard to map that value. Like, is it providing much reputational value that it's that it's actually um, enough to mitigate the cost to the business? But now we're starting to see the circular economy help to align these two things, but growth and value with improved ESG performance. And a great example of this is the example I just gave about buildings being large stocks of materials. Right now, big mining companies, they mine, for example, bauxite to make aluminum, and then that goes into buildings. There's not that much bauxite left in the ground. It's finite. So there's a security of supply issue there too. And why are they sourcing from the ground when it's causing all this environmental and community damage, often in low socioeconomic areas, when they could actually source it from materials that have already been extracted, that are existing and in circulation in the urban mine? So that's just a really classic example of how the circular economy can help to align these two things, because they're actually solving for security of supply, and they're probably achieving a premium because the market is looking for more low impact materials, which if they're secondary, if they've already been taken out of the ground and they're being reprocessed, they're causing much less damage than the ones that are being taken out of a hole in the ground. It's like so fascinating. And a lot of my job, I don't even have to talk about the climate imperative anymore because not moving towards a circular economy in so many cases is actually just bad business. Yeah, absolutely great to hear the passion you have as well for your job, which leads well into the next question about how did you get into this dream dream job of yours? What sort of tangible steps that other Master of Environment students do you think could take if they were wanting to go down the consulting path? Yeah, I think, you know, I climbed a ladder. Uh, like I was saying before, I didn't start here. I had four years in asset management in New York and then backpacked for a year. And then I knew I wanted to get into the sector. I waited tables on a working holiday visa, and I was doing everything I could to get into the environmental space. I was volunteering, I was applying for jobs a lot, um, was unsuccessful, which is why I decided to do the degree. But then, you know, the dominoes started to fall. So first I did the degree, then I got a, a fellowship in um, it, with an organization called Climate for Change, and they were doing a lot of community activation in terms of engaging the community in in the fight uh, for climate action. And I loved the fellowship, but I knew that it, that kind of taught me that I didn't really want to be in the community space necessarily. Then I had my first paid role, which was as um, an energy advisor for the Australian Energy Foundation, um, which I, I loved is a great local organization um, working um, in Brunswick, and they provide a community with advice to improve energy efficiency, to install 
renewable energy in residential homes. Um, and of course, it has that, you know, there's that cross-cutting benefit as well, because we're also helping people to save money because they'd be paying too much for, you know, let's say heating that was leaking out of the building. But so that was really interesting, and I learned a lot about the, the renewable energy and energy efficiency space, but I was still working at a community level, um, and I didn't feel like my impact was on a larger scale, which was something that I was really interested in. So I kept moving. I didn't stay put. Um, then I got an internship at an, um, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which I was very skeptical about because of my former <laughs> experience in finance, but I took this opportunity because they're um, the world's largest green bank and every investment that they make is, you know, millions of tons of carbon abated. So I really saw in them that impact that I wasn't having in my former roles. Um, so I did that for I a while. Like a lot of people in the mass environments would be really desiring to feel like they're having an impact. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's about scale and what what impact you most value because I think you know impact at the community and individual scale is so valuable it's just not what gets me going yeah it's I, all individual it's all individual and I think everybody has to in their jobs you also have to be interviewing your employers you know if you don't like something and you realize there's something that you're not as passionate about as your job to either speak up if you see the opportunity for change within the organization or to move on. And that's, that's a really valuable learning for me. For example, that I knew that I didn't want to be working on an individual or community basis, that I wanted to be having uh, a much sort of higher level, large scale impact. But, you know, what people, whatever floats your boat, because you have to be motivated and passionate in order to get up in the morning. Um, and do your job well. So I think it's really about listening to yourself and, and trusting your gut and following, you know, if you realize I need to move on to that next step, then, then do it. And just on that note, I think maybe five, even two years ago, there was a lot of hesitation to leave jobs because the, the job market is harsh. There weren't a lot of jobs in the environmental sector. Today, it's the absolute opposite. We are in such high demand. There's so many jobs. EY ju just um, announced that they're training their entire workforce in sustainability. And they've also announced wow. 30 new climate analyst jobs in Melbourne alone. That just gives you an idea. If one of the big four are doing it, like think about everybody else. Because now we're seeing... ESG align with market value and business knows that they need to get on board if they're continue, if they want to continue to be competitive in the market. I'd urge everyone to seize on the existing momentum and not be afraid to move on to the next thing for fear of losing an income because I promise you that the market is rife with opportunities for us to um, have a stepladder into the roles that you that you want. Yeah, I think it's it's also so important to know your own value. I think when you're first starting into the workforce, you can feel like you're at the bottom of the barrel. You kind of got to take whatever you can get. But I think everyone coming out of this degree is highly educated, and that we should we should see our own value. And like what you were saying, be demanding a job that actually aligns with our values and with what is going to make us happy on the day to day.
A hundred percent. And, you know, just on that, you asked me what are the, what are the steps that I took to get this role? It was exactly that. I was at the CSC. I thought it was a great organization with massive impact, but I really wanted to, um, move out of the financial sector and into actual projects. I wanted to be the one doing things. So that was a really valuable learning there. I was doing research for a class and I came across Corio, which is the company that I work for now. They weren't advertising a position. I just reached out and I said, basically, in much nicer words, I think you're badass. <laughs> um, and they got back to me and we really got along. And then they offered me a little bit of work. They liked my work. And then, and that was almost a year ago. So Amazing. I think, you know, it's really valuable to be looking for those organizations who you can demonstrate that you will be committed and aligned to. And it just makes for, for a better job. Uh, you know, if you think about, um, we had a, a careers panel last year for Penn and, um, a lot of women in the audience spoke up and said, what do I do? I have a giant gap in my resume because I was raising my child. I had, I had a kid and I took a couple years off to raise them. And now I'm having a lot of difficulty getting back into the workforce. Well, if you think about it, if you look for hiring managers and bosses who are women who have likely done the same thing, you're much more likely to get that job to begin with. So it's just increasing your chances, increasing the chances that you'll align with your managers and actually like working with them. And it's just a win-win-win. And I really encourage people to reach out and connect with the organizations that they strongly align with, that they, you know, you, you look at their website, you feel a pang and you're like, wow, I'd love to work with you to just reach out and say that. Because even if they might not have a job for you at the moment, if that once they do post a job, they'll know you're, oh, that's the person who sent that email who is really keen and really likes our work. And that's the kind of people that we want working with us. Mm. So it's really just being brave, putting yourself out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just sort of on the, you know, being confident and trusting yourself, I think what often ends up happening is people apply, apply, apply. I think a lot of us have gone through a lot of job rejections before you get your first one. But once that first domino falls, the rest, it'll just keep snowballing from there. So I know it's really hard to sort of break the ice in that initial one. But once you get your first foot in the door, your first job in the environmental sector, it'll lead to the next one. And then sooner than you know it, you'll start getting recruiters uh, contacting you on LinkedIn for other jobs. And it'll just start happening more and more. So it's really that snowball effect. And you know, don't get deterred if if you haven't gotten a successful job application in the past few years. I went through that too. And I know it's really hard, but it, it will come. And especially as you guys are closing out your degrees and you have that expertise, which to your point, point Lotus, this is a valuable skill and people aren't educated in this space. We have marketable skills now, you know, that may be a lot, maybe we're a little bit of a niche market five years ago, but now our mass market. So I really, you know, you got to be confident in that. And just another note on that, I do think that a lot of um, 
our degree is focused on those soft skills and it's really valuable to have some of those harder skills like like finance and accounting, like uh, construction or life cycle analysis to help validate our really wild and forward-thinking environmental theories and ideas. Mm. You've been touching on that the Master of Environments does really equip you with good skills. Do you think you could flesh out some of those skills that you learned within uni that you think have been useful within your role? Absolutely. So one, a lot of the environmental theory is really is really useful because you can say we have to save biodiversity, which is okay, that's maybe not a great one, but let's just go with it. We have to save biodiversity. Why? <laughs> you know, what if a client asks you why? Um, well, knowing about the nine planetary boundaries is really having that base in theory and saying, like, look, we are hurting biodiversity. This is leading to ecosystems collapse and eventually going to hurt your operations because you rely on these raw materials that rely on these ecosystem services. So that sort of really understanding the science and having the environmental theories to back up any recommendations you say are really valuable because a lot of people know what we need to do. They don't know why. And when you're the person in the room who can tell them why, then you're super valuable. To my point about those hard skills, some of the really useful classes I took were electives that were less on the soft and social skills side. I took a class called Sustainability Reporting and Management, which, again, I'm not a big fan of the financial sector. That's just a personal thing. But it's super useful to learn what tools are out there in order to quantify environmental and social costs into a business's bottom line. And be able to talk to businesses about the fact that there are emerging regulations and accounting frameworks that are push, pushing the quantification of environmental and social costs into the bottom line. So not only are there the tools to do it, but soon you'll be forced to do it because you're going to get smacked in the face with a regulation that forces you to account for you know the cost to biodiversity in your entire operations life cycle. But then... I feel like a lot of us struggle to specialize. There's a lot of us tailored. And I think working in industry while you're in your degree or in your capstone project can really help to sort of focus in on those maybe a little bit more technical classes that are out of your specialization. You know, you might be really into water management. And then think about it, like, where do you want to be working? Do you want to be working in water management in rural in a rural area or are you want do you want to be in urban planning and working with like catchments and stormwater runoff etc and then you can start to hone in on those classes that will provide you with that technical expertise to support your career goals and for me that was materials and the built environment because i see the built environment as one of the largest stocks of materials that exist so i took a lot of classes um, on life cycle assessment and property classes which really, you know, now I can sort of link the these corporate tools and corporate jargon with my environmental theory knowledge. And that makes for, you know, a powerful consultant. What do you think have been some of the biggest challenges that you faced within your role? Have you sort of managed those? One of the biggest challenges that I've faced is honestly 
imposter syndrome. And I feel like with consulting, basically, you're brought in to tell clients who are experts in what they do. A lot of them, you know, if you're going to talk to an aluminum miner, how are you going to give them recommendations about doing aluminum mining better? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that can be a bit conflicting sometimes, but I think it's really valuable to be coming in as a third party because they've actually been in it and really in the weeds of their operations for years and years and years. So even though you may not be an aluminum expert, you can get all the documentation that will kind of inform you about their operations and then superimpose that with your, you know, kind of unbiased view and your outside expertise in, in environment and in the circular economy. And then you actually can provide recommendations. But it took me a while to get over that. And my strategy is literally just fake it till you make it. Nobody, if you come into a room and you are a circular economy consultant at Corio or a sustainability consultant at Edge, nobody's going to question your background. They, they just take it at face value. And especially, I think this happens a lot for women. Especially young women. Absolutely. But when you enter that room, nobody is going to question your title. That is your title. The same way when somebody else from another company enters the a Zoom room, no, you don't question their title. That's just who they are. So you just have to pretend to be that person until eventually you are. And I'm serious. It sounds so basic, but just, you know, sometimes I would do little pep talks if I had big presentations and just be like, you're, you got this. You're badass. You're a circular economy consultant at Corio and you're going to tell those miners what to do and they're going to listen to you. And you know what? They did. <laughs> um, so I think, I think just don't be scared of going for it in the first place because don't let the fear of striking you out keep you from playing the game pretty much because the more you play the game, the more you, you'll build up that confidence to, to be successful in, in your role. One of my favorite things is don't get stressed, get excited. Yeah, it's not a problem. It's an opportunity. It's all a mindset thing. Exactly. Just like climate change, like a huge opportunity to make the world a better place, even before the 90s, when stuff started getting really bad. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing all of this and for being such an amazing resource for other Masters Environment students. And I can't wait to keep in the loop with all your achievements throughout your career. Thank you so much, Lotus. And you know, if anybody wants to reach out to me and has any questions about the circular economy or about my role, please do. Um, I'm Cameron Kaufman on Facebook and my email is Cameron at choreo.com.au. Feel free. My door is always open. And thank you so much for having me, Lotus. I look forward to hearing the rest of this pen pod season. Mm -hmm.